Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to us today. We sound very fancy. Well, hopefully. Hopefully you can hear the difference, listener. At the very least, they will be able to hear that we are both centered and not one person is on the left side and one person's on the right side. They're no longer stuck in the middle with us. Yep. So <laughs> we bought some new podcast equipment. Yes, I teased it a little bit on our Twitter. Um, that's what the image of Samson from the story of Samson and Delilah and the Mazda Zoom Zoom car was uh, <laughs> Got because it. I get we it have <laughs> two Samson Q2U microphones and a Zoom Podtrack P4 recorder. Yeah, so Sarah had a bit of a like nice bonus from her work, and after putting some of it in savings and putting some of it towards paying down the credit card, we had still. A decent amount of money so sarah decided to treat us to new microphones and a new recorder and so hopefully we sound nice and smooth like smooth jazz right um so i'm very excited about this it does mean that we're going to have to think up a new tier for um our patreon because right now our first goal is $150 and then we'll do, you know, horror adjacent episodes. But then right after that is new podcast equipment. Right. I feel like now we need to have like a tier for our backers on the Patreon where you get like a tote bag. A because, tote bag? Because now I feel like I'm on public radio. <laughs> you're definitely talking like it. Like you're, you're, you're not... It's not that you're not sounding like yourself. You're just sounding like a very smooth version. Like now that you have a microphone in front of you, you've just like gone into character. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it's a very different feel to recording the show. Yeah, you feel, sound a little low energy too. I might be tired. Listen, get off my back. <laughs> Well, uh, why don't you tell us what we are watching today? So today, Sarah, we are watching The She-Creature from 1956, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Kahn? Really? Yeah, with a C. Oh, okay. Um, Insert Star Trek reference here. Sure. (laughs) If you must. (laughs) Kahn! This is what was the bottom half of the double feature with It Conquered the World, which we watched last week. Mm -hmm. So this is another low-budget, AIP, Paul Blaisdell monster movie. We should have waited for the new equipment so we weren't coming in the middle of a double feature. (laughs) Because now if someone tries to listen to last week's episode and this one, it'll be disjointed for them. Listen, that was going to happen regardless. (laughs) The story of the production of the She-Creature starts in a bit of a strange place, Sarah. Go on. So in 1952, in Colorado, 
A hypnotist named Maury Bernstein, an amateur hypnotist, put a housewife named Virginia Ty into a trance and had her, you know, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about, right? Like, bring out those memories and and whatnot. And he had her keep going back and back until, like, she started talking about, like, a very detailed account of her past life as an Irish woman named Bridie Murphy, who lived from 1806 to 1864. She recited, you know, where she was born and the church that she was baptized in and who her husband was and where he worked and where they moved to and how she died and all of these things. And then how she was reborn 59 (laughs) years later in America and all these things. Is there historical record of this person existing? So the story of Bridie Murphy became very well known in America due to a series of newspaper articles in the Denver Post in 1954. And this was followed by Bernstein writing a book called The Search for Bridie Murphy in 1956. Okay. The book became a bestseller, yeah. smash hit. There were novelty songs, people through reincarnation come as you were parties (laughs) and uh various like past life reincarnation stories began proliferating into pop culture so after the book was published researchers started looking into this person could they find any record of bridie murphy yeah right they could find no record of bridie murphy no record of her husband the university he worked at the church she went to Like nothing. Yes, there was a university at Belfast, but it wasn't built till after she died or like in the story she died. Same with like there was that church, but it didn't exist until like the early 1900s. There was no record of the people. Um, She also said, so her husband's name was Sean Murphy uh, in this story. And she pronounced it Sian Murphy? Uh, like an American not knowing S-E-A-N is pronounced Sean. Right, exactly. So she read about this and then either through her own volition or just under hypnosis, her brain coming across this story and putting things together. Yeah, so the conclusion of most researchers is that she experienced something called kryptonesia, which is when your brain decides that like a thing that you've come across is like your one of your own memories. Okay. So this is like where, you know, when you were 16, you like saw an episode of TV late one night. And then like 15 years later, 20 years later, you're like recounting it to people as like a thing that happened to you. Because, like, you were really tired and it was late at night and the way your brain filed off the memories of that TV show, like, got weirded out, you know, and and now you think it's a thing that happened to you. Or it's like when people, like, write a book or something and people are like, you ripped that idea off from somewhere. And they're like, I've never seen that other thing. And it's like, yeah, you did. You just forgot that you saw it. That's kryptonesia. Um, So what they found out was that Virginia was adopted um, at the age of three. And her birth parents were part Irish and she grew up with her birth parents in like an Irish immigrant neighborhood. And across the street from her was an Irish immigrant named Bridie Murphy Corkle. And Virginia was given up for adoption. 
most people now believe that like her past life was basically built out of like memories from her early childhood of like her parents and of like this Irish woman who lived across the street and just like got jumbled up in her head, as you say, under hypnosis. Okay. So regardless, as I mentioned, the book was a big hit and there was like a big little like mini trend for reincarnation in the 50s. The film rights to the book were sold even before the book came out. Sure. It's a great premise. Well, and also that's one of those things where it's like, hello, I'm amateur hypnotist Maury Bernstein. (laughs) And this housewife told me she was an Irish woman from the 19th century. So money, please. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Give me a book deal. And then once I have a book deal, I'll sell the film rights before I've even finished writing the book. Uh, So the movie came out in 1956, later the same year that the book came out. That's great timing. (laughs) That's let's hit it while the iron's hot. Yeah. Uh, It was called The Search for Bridie Murphy. It was from Paramount. It starred Teresa Wright, um, who you would know best from The Best Years of Our Lives and Shadow of a Doubt. Oh, is she like the little girl, Charlie, in Shadow of a Doubt? Yeah, she's Charlie in Shadow of the Doubt. And then she's, um, I forget the character's name, but um, no, she's the character who ends up with the um, uh, amputee. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Or do I? Is it just... (laughs) crypto amnesia it was me <laughs> you were you were married to a <laughs> amputee in 1946 um there were it also was my uncle who was murdering old ladies <laughs> so there were also knockoffs that of course also came out the same year in 1956 like i've lived before which came out from universal that year <laughs> so you know the folks over at American International Pictures, AIP, you know, uh, Nicholson and Arkoff, they smelt a trend. And so uh, Lou Russoff was hired to write a script. Now, is this before or after the hospitalization of his brother, which we covered in last week's episode? So this would have been around the same time. Okay. Uh, since this is the bottom half of that same double feature. Uh, however, AIP was not up for financing the movie entirely themselves and so they brought on ed wood's one-time roommate alex gordon to produce the film if gordon could provide 40 percent of the budget whoa so it's like hey you want to be a movie producer gotta fork up some cash yeah so alex gordon's brother richard gordon had a colleague who knew a financier named jack dippelt who then put up of the movie's budget, which ended up being $104,000. So uh, director Edward L. Kahn was brought on to helm the picture. He was uh, 57 years old, and his big claim to fame as a director was that he directed the Our Gang comedies from Mm. 1939 to 1943. That's the uh, Little Rascals knockoff. No, that is the Little Rascals. Oh, what am I thinking of? What's the knockoff? Bowery Boys? Yeah. Yeah. Once those ended, uh, Khan had basically fallen into, like, B-movies after that. He had helmed the film Creature with the Atom Brain for Columbia, uh, which was written and produced by Kurt Siedmak uh, the year earlier in 1955. So because Khan had, like, a long-standing career in Hollywood going back to, like, 1917, you know, he had some connections. So he pulled some strings and convinced his friend Edward Arnold, who was a very experienced, well-known character actor, to come play the hypnotist for $3,000 for one week's work. Wow. 
And based on Edward Arnold coming in, uh, Peter Lorre also then signed on to co-star. Oh, shit. We got Peter Lorre? And then Arnold died two days before shooting was supposed to begin. And this prompted Peter Lorre to read the script. (laughs) And then that resulted in Peter Lorre dropping out of the movie and firing his agent. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, no. Oh, no. So Alex Gordon tried to get John Carradine to take either of the two roles that had been that had been left open. And Carradine turned it down. Ooh, that's he doesn't turn anything down. No, He's like William Shatner. No. John Carradine turned this movie down. Oh no. So ultimately, the role of the hypnotist went to Chester Morris, an experienced 55-year-old actor who had begun on Broadway in 1916 and made his film debut in 1929. He is best known for the 14 Boston Blackie films he made with Columbia in the 1940s, where he starred as criminal-turned-detective Boston Blackie. Uh, It's not like a a blackface role or anything. Okay. He's just like a gang... It's just like meant to sound like a gangster name. Okay. Like Scarface or... (laughs) You know, Blackie, Scarface. Babyface Nelson. Exactly the same. Yeah. Okay. After that series ended... In 1949, Morris went back to the theater and also transitioned to television. So this was like a rare return to film for him. Peter Lorre's role, meanwhile, was ultimately taken by Tom Conway. Oh, we have seen him before. Yes, we last saw him in Bride of the Gorilla in 1951. uh, And we've seen him in several pictures before that. Now, since then... Conway had gotten the lead role on the ABC television series Inspector Mark Saber, Homicide Detective. (laughs) Uh, That show ran from 1951 to 1954, and then the role was recast with actor Donald Gray when the series underwent a reboot of concept uh, and became Saber of London on ABC from 1955 to 1957, and then on NBC from 1957 to 1959. So is it still about a detective? Yes. Uh, In the original premise, Mark Saber was a British detective operating in an American city Mm. solving crimes. And with like a fish out of water situation. Right. In the Donald Gray version, Saber is a British detective in London solving international crimes. And also he has only one arm. (laughs) Uh, Because Donald Gray only had one arm. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah. I just love the and also. Right. So Conway returned to B-movies after that, and uh, that's where we find him here at the age of 52. The movie also features Kathy Downs, the 30-year-old former cover model and one-time star who we last saw as the lead female role in The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. As you may remember from that episode, uh, she was like... A teen cover model who got, like, picked up for a movie contract and, like, wasn't really expected to be anything other than a pretty face. And then... And then she was good, actually. Yeah, and she was cast as the lead in My Darling Clementine as Clementine. And then something happened and Fox let her go from her contract suddenly without explanation. And she ended up doing a lot of B-movies. 
This is, I think, the last time we're going to see her, but she did make a few more low-budget sci-fi films before retiring from acting at age 40. And then after that, she remained unemployed uh, until her death from cancer 10 years later in 1976. And this was the woman who... When she died, she had like no money at all. And then like her ex-husband, who was a fellow actor, like found out that she had no money and was like in hospital. And he like raised a bunch of money for her once he like found out that's what had happened to her because they'd like fallen out of touch. And then when he showed up with the money, she was already dead. Yeah, it was a very heartbreaking story. Yes. So yeah, so she's in this one as well. Another supporting actor in the cast is Lance Fuller, a universal international actor who had appeared as Brack. In This Island Earth. Um, so remember in This Island Earth, there's the main alien scientist with the big brain. Yeah. Uh, Brack is like his assistant. Oh, yeah. He doesn't like the like, humans. Yeah. Yeah. Another actor who appears in a supporting role in this film is Australian actor Ron Randall, who had been a big star for Columbia in the 1940s. But when his career declined, he decided to switch to theater in the 1950s rather than go to B-movies. Uh, and then he got frustrated with typecasting, so he moved to Britain uh, because he was always getting typecast in American theater as, like, the Englishman who is, like, the rival to the American romantic lead and ultimately doesn't get the girl. Sure. Uh, so he went to Britain figuring that, like, you know, Englishmen might be allowed to get the girl there. Um, <laughs> and then his career declined there, so he moved back to Australia where he came from. And then he returned to the U.S. Uh, to do this B-movie. And like specifically to do this movie or well, he came back he and came, then happened to get this he movie. He came back to the US when he decided that he would take B movie roles after okay. all and this was the movie that was his first film back in okay. the US. Um following this he appeared in a variety of small roles on TV, film and theater for the rest of his career. He never became like a star again. Yeah, but he still got steady work, mm -hmm. which is pretty good. Portraying the woman being hypnotized in the film is Marla English who was 21 years old at the time. Uh, she was born in San Diego. Uh, she became a model in her teens and then was signed to a contract at Paramount at age 17. Her big breakthrough role came when she was 19 years old, when she appeared in the film noir Shield for Murder. And then the next year, she was cast opposite Spencer Tracy in The Mountain, which was a mountaineering movie scheduled to be filmed in the French Alps. Uh, English had fallen in love with fellow Paramount actor Larry Pennell, and she wanted the studio to cast Larry in the movie so that they could go to France together. <laughs> but it's with Spencer Tracy. Yeah, just like if he got cast in like a minor role or something. Oh, uh, okay. You know, just okay. so he would have an excuse to come to the Alps so that they could be together. Yeah. Uh, Paramount, Free vacation. Right. Paramount was like, no, we're not doing that. We're not just casting your boyfriend in the role for you random 20 year old yeah. actress uh and she was like well if you don't cast him then i won't do the movie and, and they were like, like if you don't do the movie we're just gonna tear up your contract oh fuck uh so they so did they, that oh my god girl <laughs> so then she made a lot of b movies for the next two years uh like this one uh before getting married and retiring from acting at age 22 uh, and she passed away in 2012 uh, she oh. remained married to her husband that whole time, and her husband passed away five years later in 2017. Uh, was the husband that boyfriend? No. No, he was, the husband was like an English businessman or something. <laughs> Someone who she could afford to retire from acting with, you know? Yeah, that, that's fair. 
Vaudeville comedian Elmer Brendel, better known as L. Brendel, uh, appears in this movie doing his classic good-natured idiot Swede shtick, uh, which had been his bread and butter in vaudeville since 1913. And I will also note that the dog in this movie, named King, is played by Spike, the mastodor who would then play the title role in 1957's Old Yeller next year. Okay, so Old Yeller is in this movie. Yep. Oh my god. Oh my god, Ben, actually. (laughs) I'm freaking out now. (laughs) I don't think you've even seen Old Yeller. I've seen Old Yeller. Okay, sorry. So the she-creature, as I mentioned, was the bottom half of the double feature with It Conquered the World. Uh, That double feature was released July 25th, 1956. It got poor reviews, unlike It Conquered the World. Uh, And it was the subject of episode 8 of season 8 of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Paul Blaisdell's monster costume for this film is considered to be one of his best and was later reused in the film Voodoo Woman the next year. Is that a sequel to Voodoo Man? No. Okay. From like the 40s? Yeah, yeah. I know what movie you're talking about. (laughs) I just wanted to underline, like, if it was, this is like 10 years later. Yeah, no. Today you can find the she-creature on DVD paired with Day the World Ended on volume one of the Samuel Arkoff Cult Classics Collection. Uh, It is also currently streaming on Tubi. Tubi to the rescue. (laughs) Cool. Well, hopefully folks listening at home can find a copy and watch along. Uh, Tubi is free. Uh, You just have to deal with some ads, so check it out there. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The She-Creature from 1956, directed by Edward L. Kahn. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The She-Creature from 1956, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Sarah, what did you think? You know, it felt like it started off strong Mm. and just coasted and fell flat by the end. Yeah, I don't know about fell flat, but I would agree with you that it starts strong and, and decreases in quality, definitely. Yes. Uh, I think how steep that decrease occurs depends mm. on your tolerance for movies like this. For sure. Yep. But for my money, this wasn't that bad. It just wasn't that good. It was better than I was expecting. That's and fair. it sort of continued the trend of these AIP monster movies being... A little better than expected and a little more interesting than expected. But I will say that, like, there's some major flaws with this one. Like, I would agree that that's definitely a trend that AIP seems to have with their pictures. But this one didn't really have that interesting spark. Um, At least that didn't seem to be the interest of the people making the movie. Hmm. Um, and we can kind of get into that in the discussion. For sure. So 
let's talk about the story, which is sort of a Svengali, Bridie Murphy, Creature from the Black Lagoon mix. Yeah. I wasn't sure if we were going to get like a Murders in the Room morgue kind of Mm -hmm. vibe because we have like stuff happening in a carnival. But let, let me get into it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, I'm just going to list our main characters here. Okay. Just so it's kind of clear who everyone is. So we have Dr. Carlo Lombardi, and he's our big bad, the hypnotist. Um, a Dr. Ted Erickson, who is our main protagonist. Um, he is also, uh... On the more academic side of hypnotism, they say his actual study is like psychic arts or... <laughs> yeah, I think like nowadays you would he would just be like a hypnotherapist, like he's a psychologist, yeah. like he's not... Dr. Lombardi, you see, is sort of a... Uh, he's a doctor in the way Dr. Phil is a doctor, and he's a hypnotist in the way that like... He's at carnivals and has a singular person who says, oh, my great ancestor, Brittany Murphy or whatever. He's a hypnotist in the way that like Penn and Teller are wizards. Okay, so that's Lombardi and Erickson. Then we have uh, Lombardi's um, assistant uh, who gets put under hypnosis, Andrea Talbot. No relation to Lawrence Talbot because her last name is spelt with uh, two T's at the end. I didn't even catch her last name watching the movie. So. Oh, it was just in the cast list. Gotcha. And then we have Timothy Chapel, who is a businessman and has a daughter named Dorothy, who, uh, when we when we first start out in the movie, uh, she is trying to get with Ted. And then we have our police lieutenant, Ed James. Lieutenant James. Lieutenant Yames. Yep, according to that Swedish uh, butler. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as we start out, we are on the beach, and we see that Dr. Lombardi uh, is looking out into the ocean and sees something. It looks like something glowing from the ocean. And he follows these footsteps that um, are like monstrous creature footsteps up to a beach house, and he sees a grisly murder scene. And he seems to be like, yes, good. And as he leaves... Um, Dr. Erickson and his date, Dorothy, see Lombardi leave the beach house. Now, they were going for a walk. Dorothy was hoping it was a romantic walk on the beach. Um, They go up to the beach house and they're like, oh, okay, people are murdered. Let's get the police. Apparently, Dr. Lombardi has been making a big splash with the local, like, wives clubs. Yeah, basically. He is based at the local carnival and has this whole act, as we kind of just described. He puts Andrea under hypnosis and she does, I'm Brittany Murphy. She, her name's like Elizabeth Weatherby or whatever. Brittany I, Murphy's an actress. Yes, a deceased actress. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I guess it still works if she's deceased. Except that Brittany Murphy died like in this century. Yeah. What? Uh, Bridie Murphy is Bridie. who you're trying to think of. But yes, Elizabeth Weatherby is the like version in this movie. Yeah. Now this has all of the local wives in a stir. And this is where Lombardi predicted the murder that was going to happen on the seaside. Because Dr. Erickson saw Lombardi leave, um, he tells the police this. And Erickson and Lieutenant James head to Lombardi's circus act to ask him some questions 
And this is when we meet Andrea. Now, before the police and Erickson arrive, we see that Andrea, when she is not hypnotized, just absolutely hates Lombardi, just absolutely loathes him. And he's all like, no, you will love me. I'll <laughs> hypnotize you into loving me. You are under my control. Um, he also kisses her to awaken her which makes it real gross when you realize that, no, she actually hates you and doesn't want to be touched by you. He's a real creep. Yeah, the the whole relationship between the two of them is definitely like fraught with consent issues in that she doesn't have any because she's his hypnotic slave. Yeah, and it's like she, because she says, I want to get away. And he's like, no, you won't be able to leave. So it's clear that she has like no real free will. But to be fair... Lombardi is the villain. <laughs> yes, but it's good to maybe know this going in. It's just consent issues aren't nice to dealt with. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I'm just saying that, like, you know, sometimes you go into movies from the 50s and the men who don't really care about consent are the heroes of the movie. This is true. So, we have had that. Yeah. There is a local carny. He has a name. I didn't catch it. Johnny. Johnny the Carney. Mm-hmm. Um, he tries to get involved to help Andrea because he, he can see like something weird is going on here. I used to see Andrea all the time, just out and about. And now she's constantly kept under hypnosis in a catatonic state. And so he confronts Lombardi about this. And Lombardi's like, you don't understand. You fool. <laughs> Nice throat you have there. (laughs) Shame if anything were to slash it. Um, So Johnny the Carney is the next to be murdered. And this is when we actually get to see the she creature who rises from the sea. I'm sure there's like a riff on she sells seashells by the seashore in there, but uh, I'm not going to make it. She kills. Nope, I got nothing. She kills. (laughs) With each murder being done, Lieutenant James is like, Lombardi, I know it's you. And Lombardi's like, prove it. Um, and part of why the lieutenant's sights are on Lombardi is because after every murder, Lombardi's like, I predicted this. It's a she creature from the ocean. I have a psychic connection with her. And, and just like makes it really clear that he has a connection to her. But actually, I have nothing to do with these murders. Yeah, it's it's... Almost like it's kind of wild because Lombardi's whole shtick is that, you know, I put Andrea under this hypnosis and she remembers her past lives. And like, yeah, there's the Elizabeth Weatherby one. But the idea is that like the she creature is like her ultimate past life because like the she creature is supposed to be like some sort of like prehistoric being. Yeah. Like from the beginning of time. Right. Like like as if. It's sort of taking that creature from the Black Lagoon um, position that like what like what if man evolved from fish and that the intermediary step there wasn't several million years of evolution into other creatures, but just like a fish person. Um, So that's the she creature. Um, She's she's the creature from the Black Lagoon with wet blonde hair and boobs like giant bedongadongs. Like. Yeah, like like they're like scaly boulder boobs because they're like a hemisphere of a sphere that's just been like strapped, like glued yeah. to her chest. Like they took two basketballs. Mm-hmm. And they took paper- one. They took one basketball and well, cut it in half. Yeah, they paper mache a whole basketball. Like they yeah. are huge. It's like, um, can I get some like 
realistic feminine anatomy in well, here. Well, it's not just the size <laughs> of them, quite frankly. It's the fact that, like, they're perfect half spheres. They don't yeah. have any, like, realistic weight to them. Like, Paul Blaisdell hasn't seen boobs, maybe, <laughs> um, outside of a bra. Anyways. What they I'm, don't have the point of, like, a 50s bra, at that's least. That's true. That's true. Um, and, and they're also clearly not, like working memories because they're just like big scaly half spheres anyways the point is <laughs> that she has boobs and we're, and we're being very mature about this very mature about it and lombardi's whole shtick is he's like oh yes i am the one who gives the she creature form and i am the one who like summons her it's like okay so the only reason lieutenant james can't arrest him is because like that's, that's crazy all bonkers yeah because like he's he's outright saying like i'm the, like he's not saying i'm telling the she creature to commit the murders he's saying like i predict there will be a murder committed by the monster that i create with my hypnosis like am i really responsible if i say hey there's going to be a dog attack here and then i let loose my rabies ridded dog yeah exactly like yes you are yeah like james should be able to arrest him on the basis of like okay well if the she creature's doing the murders and you're the one who's making the she creature a corporeal monster it's your fault except that like again corporeal monster that sounds crazy yeah but there's all this publicity Back to the plot summary. In Timothy Chapel, Dorothy's dad, who's played by Tom Conway, so he has like the appropriate like, I'm a businessman. I'm rich. I'm rich and I make money. And I and don't trade have and ethics. Stock. And I don't have ethics. <laughs> um, he smells a way to make a quick buck and strikes a business deal with Lombardi. Chapel doesn't believe in any of this, but he's like, everyone else does. So let's get a book deal, cross-country tours, and all this TV jazz. TV appearances, newspaper columns. And boy, do they make money. They make up to $250,000 each. Yes. Um, over a million books sold at uh, $4.75 a pop, which Ben, you said was... F- like about 45 bucks today. Yeah. Yeah. As... These book deals and everything is going on. Lombardi goes to chapel and he's like, you know, I shouldn't be, be staying at the circus while we're doing all this. So I'm going to stay at your house. Good. And chapel's like, oh, uh, uh, hmm. Yeah, sure. Until you get, uh, you know, on your feet and find a nice, cool, rich person house to live in. Sure. Also during the montage of book deals, tours, oh my, uh, Lieutenant James continues to investigate the murders and Erickson begins to investigate how Lombardi does his hypnosis. It's kind of started as like a, like part of the publicity, you know, testing scientifically how the hypnosis works. And Prove all of this. me wrong, Erickson. Exactly. And at the same time, Erickson begins to fall for Andrea and she does so as well for him, which means Dorothy is out in the cold, but don't worry, she gets back with her ex-fiance. Who's, uh, who's a who's a drunk but it's implied that he gives up drinking to get back with her yeah it's it's nothing it doesn't matter nope um so cool we've made two hundred fifty thousand dollars each um now chapel says to lombardi you can move out lombardi's like i don't think so and starts to stare him down and chapel's like no you're going to move out <laughs> <laughs> i don't believe in your shit and lombardi's like fine fuck you fuck everything we're out of business together and chapel's like no like we we can still do business dude like just get your own place like 
We can still do business, but it's too late. Chapel has a target on his back. But before he moves out, there's one last demonstration at the Chapel House. Um, and during this last demonstration, it becomes clear how powerful the love between Andrea and Erickson is because he is helping her resist Lombardi's hypnosis powers. And this is like, he was already like upset that they were getting closer. And now he's like, fuck all this. You're resisting my power? Listen, bitch, you belong to me, is kind of his attitude. So, as part of this demonstration, he gets the she-creature to come out. Now, Lieutenant James uh, has put two and two together that, oh, he makes, Lombardi makes the thing corporeal and blah, blah, blah. So he's searching the beach just as the she-creature comes out and whacks him. He's dead. But not before he can say some last words to Erickson about he makes the thing corporeal and... That and murders heads, people. Yeah, like, and, it, and it always heads back to the sea the way it came. Yeah. We see the she-creature heads to the house and kills Chapel. Erickson makes it back to the house and uh, is about to get killed, but the she-creature can't kill Erickson. Just hesitates and instead turns and kills Lombardi. Dun-dun-dun. Nobody saw that coming. Now, it's been made clear in the rules of hypnosis up to this point that... A person under hypnosis can only be brought out by the same person who put them in. So at this point, if Lombardi dies, then Andrea is just like stuck in this catatonic state forever. But with his last dying breath and um, a stream of ketchup from his mouth. Probably chocolate syrup. (laughs) He reaches up and releases Andrea from hypnosis and his control. And he's like, you you can live your life now. I want your beauty to live on. It's okay if I don't own you because, you know, I'm going to be dead. So what does it matter? Yeah. Uh, the she-creature uh, leaves back into the ocean. Um, and Andrea and Erickson get together at the end. Um, but is it the end? Because it ends with a giant question mark. <laughs> so... I have some problems with this movie, Mm -hmm. but I think that... Oh, I forgot to mention, the dog doesn't die. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The dog does get hypnotized into attacking Erickson at one point, but then... Several times. Right. But then um, Andrea hypnotizes it away somehow. She uses her she-creature voice. Right. Which is okay. Yeah. So, So the plot here is nonsense. Yeah. But it's fun enough. For a story of this type. Like, we've seen elements of this movie in other movies before. You know, the, like, I'm going to get the monster to do my murders for me thing. The, like, I'm a sham hypnotist thing. The, like, like just there's a lot of elements here that we've seen before. But, like, I think this movie's fun enough that you can kind of forgive the fact that it's just total... Nonsense. Total nonsense. I will take issue with your point just right there about... I'm a sham yeah, hypnotist. Yeah, he's not. Because it's it in order for the movie to work, he he has to be real. So this is this is one of the things that's interesting about this movie because like the last time we really had a lot of hypnosis outside of just Bella Lugosi was back in like the late 30s, the 40s, where there was a lot of spiritualism and that kind of trend. Yes, exactly. Um, and they even like bring it up here as like the old wives are talking about like oh yeah, I used to be into spiritualism and now I'm really into this, like, I think they're talking about yoga yeah. with like a, a yeah. Hindu guy. Yeah, they're, they're into yoga and then now they're into like this like age regression stuff. 
And, you know, even um, Erickson, when talking about like Lombardi, you know, says like he set hypnotism back 20 years, right? From like, the, the contrast between the two of them is supposed to be, you know, that Lombardi Eric- is trying to like take advantage of people where, while Erickson is trying to do this as an academic study to help people. Yeah, exactly. And Lombardi's a fucking, whether he can do the powers for real or not, he's still a con man Yeah, because he's not like out here to be like, ah, yes, with my powers of hypnosis, I will help you like overcome your childhood trauma about whatever. He's out here to be like, so I'm going to get up on a stage in like a, a tux and my beautiful assistant will then like do some freaky deaky stuff under hypnosis and then you're going to pay me money. Like whether the hypnosis yeah. is real or not, that's still a load of bullshit, right? And like, sure, the the murders later on are clearly like he has chosen specific people, but the first two murders and then a couple later on just seem to be random to kind of legitimize that he had this prediction that there were going to be murders. So, so this gets into like one of my big problems with the movie, but like, I did want to just put like a spotlight on the fact that like we are getting this hypnosis stuff here because the Bridie Murphy stuff brought hypnosis back into like Vogue. Yeah, exactly. The difference between the way that hypnosis is portrayed here versus those earlier movies, I think, is significant because in those earlier movies, it was almost always proved that the spiritualist, the hypnotist, the seance guy, whatever, was like a load of crap, right? That like there was machines set up in the room to pull off nonsense and so on and so forth. It was all a trick. And this movie has the same like tone as one of those because our hypnotist is the bad guy but his powers are real and we also have like a good guy hypnotist which i think shows like a difference in attitude Mm -hmm. about it coming into the 1950s where psychology is starting to be a much more like legitimate practice at least in like the eyes of the common person basically so we have this kind of like conflict between i would say like the old fashioned hypnotist who's like, I am the great Lombardi. Yeah. Uh, And like the modern hypnotist who's like, hello, yes, I'm doing some studies on some lab rats over here because of like, I'm probably, you know, I'm doing some, uh, like the FDA wants me to approve like a psychiatric drug or some nonsense. Yeah. You know? Um, So that's, I think something interesting about this movie, that kind of conflict um, being shown. Conflict and progression. Right. But, One of my biggest problems with the movie, among others, is that uh, Lombardi doesn't really have, like, a clear motive for what he's doing most of the time. Besides being an egomaniac. Right. So he's an egomaniac. Great. And he obviously, like, wants control over Andrea. I get that, too. That's fine. Um, Well, it's not fine, but go on. No, like, as a character motivation. (laughs) Um, And, like, you know, Chapel comes to him and is like, hey... You're doing these predictions. Like, okay, so here's the thing. Lombardi already is making money off his shows, right? Because he's in a carnival. But he's making like 35 cents on like selling like pamphlets instead of like the 450 that he's selling, you know, on the or 475 that the book is selling or whatever once he gets in business with Chapel. But Chapel's the one who realizes like, oh yeah, like keep doing predictions, like keep doing things that will get you publicity and then you'll make more money. Chapel's the one who makes Lombardi's motive like money yeah because like if lombardi's motive was to get rich 
he wouldn't have needed Chapel to come in and be like, hey, you could do book deals, right? The impression that you get at the start of the movie is that like, yeah, he's, you know, selling tickets or whatever, but that's because like, that's just how he's like making a living on his like weird hypnotism powers. But, you know, when the movie starts, he's already murdered just like a random couple that lives by the sea. And, you know, then at one point in the movie, he murders some random teenagers necking in a car overlooking yeah. a cliff like the she creature just comes up and like flips their car off the cliff there's no explosion but they do they are dead they're definitely dead like yeah. definitely that's not like sending the creature after johnny or sending the creature after chapel or sending the creature after erickson like those aren't targeted the teenager one happens after he's in business with chapel so it can be a thing where he's like i predict a murder and then a murder happens but like the first one, like, yeah, he predicted that too. But why though? Like put yourself in his shoes. Yeah. You have the power to make like a busty fish monster come up out of the ocean and do murders. Dope. So do you know where Mitch McConnell lives? <laughs> <laughs> so step one, tell everyone that the monster <laughs> is going to come up on shore and murder some people. Yeah. Step two get the monster to murder some people. Step three, I don't know. Why is he doing that? And why those people? So like the only conclusion is like, yeah, he's an egomaniac. He wants everyone to be like, oh, wow, you were right. Like it, it's just, it just seems like he just wants people to come up to him and put a, give him a pat on the back and say like, wow, doc, you were right. Yeah. And like, that is a wild, like, like just affirmation is a wild motivation for I randomly murdered some people brutally like sure but you did forget step four profit except that like okay what's the profit on that though profit is chapel <laughs> coming to him and well, being like, like hey we can make some money like on this. chapel definitely capitalizes on it yeah. and turns it into this huge thing yeah but I think that was still part of where Lombardi was going but I will say that like absolutely the motivation is muddled. Yes. And that is even acknowledged by the characters like Lieutenant James. At one point, Erickson is like, what would the motives of these murders be? Yeah. And Lieutenant James is like, love, hate, or profit. Or any one of those three. That's what I mean. Like, we can assume that maybe he was doing it for publicity and money to begin with. But like, given that it was just publicity that was earning him 35 cent brochure sales, like... <laughs> You know, it's unclear. The movie doesn't make it very un very clear other than he's like a psychopath. Yeah. Right? And then the other thing that's frustrating to me is that we meet Andrea already a slave of Lombardi. And she has all this dialogue that's like, I hate you. And like, I hate being here. And like, I, I wish I could escape from you. And he's like, you can never escape me. Like, you need me. And like, all this stuff. But like, their backstory is never really explained at all uh johnny the carney says something along the lines of andrea being someone who also worked at the carnival and happened to like yeah start like, working with lombardi but the, that's really the only thing we know about her backstory right like she was his like you know again magician's assistant or whatever but like yeah by the time we meet them like why did she start working with him why did she start agreeing to get hypnotized like this once he started doing it why did she stick around this long like how did things get to here and so it makes like andrea's character very weak because we don't get it 
you know, it's like the old, like, why do you stay with him question with abusive relationships? Only like this movie's answer is like, because he has her under hypnosis. And it's like, <laughs> right. But like, how did we get that far? Yeah. How did we get to this point? Um, I think even just something along the lines of like her saying to Erickson, you know, when we started, uh, we had such big ideas of what we could do with the show. And then he blah, 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 blah. Right. So this is the other big problem I have with the movie. Yes. Which is the montage. Yeah. Her entire relationship with Erickson, them falling in love, them growing to trust each other, uh, him teaching her how to resist his mind powers. All of that happens in a dialogue free montage that is like happening at the same time as we get like the classic like shots of trains going to different cities and him performing in different theaters like oh he's a worldwide hit montage yeah and like here's the thing here are the scenes where her and erickson interact before that montage he meets her at the carnival they leave lombardi's act together he's like hey you seem cool because like andrea's really hot And it's very obvious that, like, that is what initially gets Dr. Erickson's attention. Uh, And so they leave the carnival act together and he's like, hey, want to get a coffee? And she's like, oh, yeah, I would love to do that. And then, like, Lombardi from the other room is like, no, you don't. And she's like, no, I don't. And, like, walks away. The next time he ever sees her is when Lombardi does his first show at Chapel's house for like the investors basically. And Erickson's there with Dorothy because theoretically they're a couple and Andrea walks in and Erickson basically turns into like the wolf from those Tex Avery cartoons. And (laughs) with like the heart pounding out of his chest. And and Dorothy's like, Hey, I'm right here. And he's like, yeah, but she's just so clinically interesting from my perspective, like as a psychologist. (laughs) And then the next time they're together, is in like random scenes in the montage where like he's talking to her at his lab and then they're like talking to each other in a car on a date and like we don't hear any of what they're saying to each other. So like we don't get to hear obvious things that you would obviously get in those scenes like Erickson asking her, hey, how did you get mixed up in all this? And like, how does this work? And like, do you think this is real? And what's the deal with this, that and the other thing? And like, oh, yeah, you want to resist him? Well, I know some hypnosis, too. And like, here's how you do it and blah, blah, blah. It's as if like the writer, Lou Rusoff, was like, oh, I don't feel like writing that part because I don't really know how hypnosis works and I don't really have an explanation for why her character would make sense. So I'm just going to throw all that in a montage and we find out that's what they've been talking about later when like Lombardi and Erickson are talking and Lombardi's like, you sure have been getting close to Andrea and Erickson's like, yeah, and I've taught her how to resist you too. And it's like, okay, I guess that's what was happening (laughs) off screen, you know? And that's just, that's just a bad choice of what to gloss over in your story. Yes. And I think given that we get specific shots in like different locations, it makes me wonder, was dialogue written? And the director was like, oh, we're running out of runtime. So let's just gloss over this or or something. It just makes me wonder because the, the thing about this movie that makes it to me not as good as the other AIP pictures we've seen is because it seems to focus on the she creature Mm. as the big bad Mm -hmm. rather than using premise of a she creature to open up the character drama like we saw in last week's movie it conquered the world where it's like 
oh, the Venusian isn't necessarily the big bad. It opens up the character drama for Lee Van Cleef. And the thing is, is like, it's Lou Russoff writing all of these movies, but it's not Roger Corman directing all of them. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here is like, the character drama is here because... I suspect the montage scene was shot as a montage scene. And the reason why I suspect that and that it's not just like, oh, we cut some stuff down for time or whatever is because there's this whole fucking drama about Erickson and Dorothy and are they going to get together? And, oh, well, he's interested in Andrea. And then, like, she's got this drunk ex who's, like, been going through scenes for, like, the whole movie being like, hey, Erickson, like, you're here to be a fraud. Yeah, like. Exactly. Like, it's like, so weird. He's just like there drinking in the background being like, oh, it's the stupid fraud Lombardi and it's stupid fraud Erickson here to hang out. You guys going to be dumb frauds together? Like That's literally, that's practically what he says. Why don't you go kiss? <laughs> um, that would be a movie. Right. And so it's like, this is this whole thing that's going on. And then it like culminates in Dorothy just being like, yeah, man, if you want to go be with Andrea, like, whatevs. And then, like, letting him go. And then the ex, the drunk ex approaching Dorothy and being like, hey, I'm an alcoholic. And her being like, yeah, that's a problem for me. And him being like, well, then I guess I won't be. And she being like, cool, we'll get back together. His name is Bob, by the way. And it's just like, why are these characters in the movie? The movie doesn't care about them. Like, Dorothy Mm -hmm. and Bob are treated as, like, appendices in this movie they don't serve a plot purpose like dorothy's purpose in the story because she just gets like dumped by erickson like halfway through her purpose is because like her being chapel's daughter is why erickson knows chapel and is therefore like in the area for all of this but like erickson could have been like chapel's son yeah because the whole reason why like lombardi gets lumped in is because like chapel's wife is into him Right. And then that could be super interesting with like Erickson being like, mom, this guy's like a fraud and her being like, no, 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 I really, I did see it. Um, so it's just like these weird vestigial characters. And it feels to me like Rousseff putting in that kind of character, you know, drama that he likes to put in these movies. And then like director Edward Kahn coming in and being like, right, but like we're making a monster movie, right? Like nobody, right? Like nobody cares about this, right? Cool. Yeah, so let's not. But it's like, if you were cutting the movie down, because oops, we shot a two-hour movie and it needs to be an hour and ten minutes. You would cut those characters. Yeah, you would cut those characters, not the fucking main plot developments (laughs) of your movie. Yeah, and and I think that's kind of like my main problem with this movie, because like... The only real horror, like the creature isn't that terrifying. You can like walk briskly away from it. Yeah, that's a big problem. It just kind of like slaps you and then you're dead. Dead. And that was such a disappointment because when you see the first grisly murder scene, like the bed is flipped over, the way that the... uh, There's like blood on the walls. Blood on the walls, the way that the corpses are around and have like this like look on their face. Like it's really well done and it really sets you up and then it doesn't go anywhere. And the creature is such a letdown. The only real horror was in that controlling relationship between Lombardi and Andrea. Right. Like, that relationship is literally described as Andrea being subjugated and it being, like, a form of slavery, which, I mean, like, can't really compare it to actual slavery, but it's still, that's where the horror is going to be, how she hates him and yet he, like, kisses her while she's asleep. Right. I feel like, because I think you're totally right, 
And the problem is, is that the movie's not from Andrea's point of view, or even like doesn't have enough scenes with her in it. Like she basically has three dialogue scenes in the movie, more or less. She's in a lot more of the movie, but like she has three scenes where she actually gets to like talk, talk and express herself. And I feel like what might have happened is maybe a realization that Marla English can't act. Oh. Like she's she's trying. Yeah. Like she's trying her best here. And she's even like putting on an accent for being like Elizabeth Weatherby or whatever. But maybe there was a recognition like she couldn't get across that horror well enough to make that the focus of the movie. Sure. I don't know. But I, I totally agree with you. And I totally agree with you about like the letdown of the murder scenes after the first one. Because the first one is really grisly and, and cool. And, you know, like you said, the others are not. that. that the, the teens dying in the car, though. That's, that's pretty dope. Well, and also Johnny's like on a bed that gets like thrown across the room. But like the problems with the creature are kind of the same problems we had with like universal monsters like 10 years before this which is that they walk real slow because I guess it's comical when Tom Conway's trying to get away because he's just like walking slowly backwards and not in like a, I am stunned, but in a, like, I guess, okay, back away. Keep shooting. He he could easily just run away from it. You know, he shoots it a few times. He runs out of bullets. He throws his gun at it. Now his back's up against the wall and it comes at him and it bonks him over the head. And it's like, when you were outside, you could have just turned around and run. And that's the same with like, everyone this creature comes at and yeah it's got these big claw arms like it's not like it couldn't have done all the horrific stuff that it looks like it did in other scenes it's just that when it comes time to film it like clearly they don't have any kind of like special effects mechanism for having it actually like tear people to bits yeah so paul's bladesdale just like knocks people on the shoulder with one of the big claw arms and they just go down it's a very old-fashioned kind of monster murder scene in a way that feels disappointing here in 1956 yes yeah honestly like the creature design not counting the boobs and the blonde haired wig Mm -hmm. it's kind of a neat design because it's like based on like a, a lobster yeah it's it's a cool creature even with the like hair or whatever like that just makes it so like comical like oh how do we make sure that we know it's a girl yeah it has long hair and boobs yeah like despite being a lobster right who lays eggs and doesn't like milk their babies yeah 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 so (laughs) regardless of those things even including (laughs) even including those things this is definitely the best creature suit that we've seen from paul blaisdell like it it's big it's tall it looks cool the faces are really like cool and menacing design it, it uh it moves a little bit not like having like mandibles but um when we have close-ups on it you can see that it moves as if it's breathing or yeah something. and it's like wet you know and it looks like it came out of the ocean like the hair is wet like it has texture like it it's undoubtedly the best thing we've seen from him and it looks scary and it's big and it's tall like it's a good monster and the effects of like because when it first comes out of the ocean it comes out of it like it's a ghost yeah and then it like materializes or like when lombardi calls like elizabeth's spirit to go do things or whatever this like mist comes out of 
Andrea and starts flying around and like that looks pretty good. Like the effects here are good. There's some good filmmaking here in terms of like use of light and shadow. Um, there's some cool angles. There's, yeah, there's like, a, like attempted camera work. Yeah, there's like a cool gritty grizzly film noiry kind of style to like the first third of the movie or so. And like the filmmaking never really gets bad. So like, you know, you can tell that the director is experienced and knows what he's doing and like has enough time to kind of do some cool stuff. I think the other big thing about this movie that, I don't know, it's kind of like a thing you can't really put your finger on, is that it feels male gazy. Yeah, in a very, like, how do I say this? Casual, like, non-thinking way. Yeah, um, like, they're not doing it purposefully. You know, the camera doesn't, like, look longingly over Andrea's legs, but there were plenty of times where, like, she's just in the background changing. Yeah, it's it's... When we say it's not purposeful, I it's not that we don't think they did it on purpose. Like, they did it on purpose. Yeah. But it's not like... It's the kind of like... Okay. How am I trying to say this? Personally. Speaking personally. For my taste in movies. If you want there to be a sexy babe in your movie. And if you want the audience to be, like, aware that she's a sexy babe. And you want, like, her to have sexiness on screen make that the point don't be telling me you know for example oh she's like a tough rough badass and like she's a strong female character and like she's not like sexy she's like violent and and cool and whatever but then be showing me like hey check out that ass though like don't do that (laughs) like if you want if you want to have sexiness in your movie, just be fucking honest about it and be like, yeah, like here's a scene where she's like undressing for like the lead protagonist. Cause they're about to have sex and she's doing it sexy because like she's she sexy. Yeah, exactly. Like, like be honest about it. Right. And so what you have in this movie is like somebody going like, right. But like, this is an exploitation picture. Like this is going to show in some drive-ins. It's going to show in some downtown theaters. Like we don't need to get code approval for this. So like she's a pretty dame and like, this is her dressing room. So just have her like, you know, take her shirt off and we'll see her bra or whatever. Like (laughs) I I really did not expect how much she would play to the microphone. Once we got these, it is quite enjoyable and I hope the listener enjoys it as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird how the movie, you would expect, like, very, like, purposeful male gaziness, mm. I think, would best be described as, like, sexy dame enters and the camera follows her foot right. up the leg, follows every angle around the hip and up to the breasts and her face. Yeah, yeah. And this movie doesn't do that, but it certainly does make sure that you see that. Andrea has curves underneath a very see-through dress. Yes, her dress is very, like, translucent. So when she, like, gets up on the couch on the stage, you can, like, see right through it and see her legs and, and everything. It just feels like it's like we're not drawing attention to it. It's just there. And I could see how someone might argue, like, oh, well, then it's just, like, matter of fact. So it's not that bad. But as I'm saying, I actually think that's worse because it's you trying to just put in some gratuitous sexiness under the radar and it's not serving any like purpose, right? Like my belief about filmmaking is that everything you are doing should be 
an attempt to get some kind of reaction out of the audience, right? In horror, you're trying to scare them. In comedy, you're trying to make them laugh, right? You know, a, a dialogue heavy drama might be trying to get you to like think about like certain issues that you'd never thought about before, or whatever, right? And so it's like it it always feels disingenuous to me when a movie is clearly trying to like make me feel horny, but like is trying to play it off like it's not. Yeah. Right. You want things to be committed to Uh, just honest about what you're doing. Yeah. Like I don't mind you trying to get me horny, but just like be honest about it. Sure. And I think the fact that like we have our character who is in the midst of a relationship that needs to have discussions about consent. Right. She's the most sexualized. And then the creature that is summoned from her lineage is a lobster with tits and a wig. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's just really weird. For the most part, like, this isn't like, okay, like, if you haven't watched the movie along with us, listener, like, it's not super egregious. Like, this isn't like something yeah, where you're going to watch it. Worse. It doesn't feel sleazy. Like, you're not going to get feel icked out. You're not going to have to worry about when your parents walk right. in. It's just the kind of thing where, like, I think... The thing about it is, A, I think it's showing that we're into the later part of the 50s and like the codes hold on movie making is starting to really get challenged and slip. Like even major studios are putting out movies without code approval every now and again by this point. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when does Some Like It Hot come out? Like 57, 58? Yeah, so next year. Yeah, so like you know morals are changing times are changing we're getting like a little more bold about what we can put in like movies so that's one aspect of it and i think the other aspect of it is just you know coming back to the point about how like andrea and erickson's entire relationship happens like practically off screen basically erickson realizes the first time he sees lombardi's show that he's got Andrea in a way deeper hypnosis than she should be. And he even like turns to Dorothy and he's like, he's got her totally under his control. So the natural question, I feel like if I was watching a show and I saw like, say a tarted up dame on stage, like in like a super revealing costume and being like made to like show off how sexy she is. But like, it was clear to me watching the show that she was like drugged or like drunk or like not in her right mind. And meanwhile, there was like a totally in his right mind, like guy up there being like, yeah, shake it baby for the audience or whatever. I would start to feel really weirded out. And I would like go up to, you know, if I was Erickson in this movie, it's like, you know, my first question for Lombardi would be like, so is she like aware of what she's wearing? Is she aware? Like, is she a willing participant in this show? What's her cut of the profits? Yeah. You know, or the first time I talked to her, it would be like, hey, do you, do you know that like this is what the deal is? And like there would be questions. It's like, hey, why is she if um, hey, Lombardi, hi, um, if you're trying to prove to the scientific community that like your theories about how we come from fish people and we can like access those memories. Yeah. Through like hypnosis. If you want that to be taken as legit and taken seriously, why the fuck are you up here in a fucking magician's outfit with your like fucking see-through white dress assistant, like laid out in a fucking spotlight on the stage? Like, why is this your presentation? Like, Oh, I'm sorry, the scientific community laughed at you? Yeah, that's because you need to submit papers 
dude, for peer review. <laughs> you don't fucking go up on fucking TNN and be like, hey, here's my sexy assistant. Yeah. There are plenty of murders in this movie. Yeah. But they're all unnamed characters. So I feel it feels like not enough people die. Yeah, because we have too many characters. Yeah. Like, hey, you know what would have been a great thing to do with Dorothy and Bob after they got together and weren't involved in the story anymore? When the she-creature comes up to the house to raise hell to go after Chapel, like, have them get murdered or something. Yeah. Just, yeah. More people need to die. It's a fun movie. I enjoyed watching it. I had a fun time. It's, you know, about as enjoyable as a movie of this type should be. The reason I brought up earlier about, like, the difference is that Roger Corman isn't directing it is, you know, this is still the same writer and this is still the same producers. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, if you're watching this and you're going like, well, but the other AIP movies, like they were like this, but they were a little more thoughtful than this. They were a little cleverer than this. They felt a little more aware of what they were doing than this. Like if everything else is the same, but one element, I feel like that points the finger at that element for being responsible for that, right? So it's like, okay, what is Roger Corman bringing to these movies? Well, he's bringing the ability to shoot a feature-length film in two days for $4,000. But, like, he also, I think, is bringing, like, a sense of, like... Uh, Authorship. Authorship. And, like, um, intentionality to things. Uh, so let's, let's move on to ranking. Um, cause I think this is a good transition point. Um, we brought up it conquered the world, uh, earlier that is currently ranked at number 47, but I would love to hear what your range is. Okay. So you brought up it conquered the world and I see where you're going with that, given that it is the other half of this double feature, but where my brain went initially was the amazing Mr. X a.k.a. The Spiritualist, at number 60. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just because we're in the same realm of, like... Hypnotism. Used for evil. (laughs) And spiritualism. Yeah. Um, So, my honest opinion is that this feels about the same quality level as that to me. Um, Like, they both have some cool shots. I think maybe The Amazing Mr. X has some more cool shots. Amazing Mr. X maybe has some better characters and better character motivation, but also doesn't have like a monster that comes out of the sea and like rips people asunder. (laughs) Um, It's production value is much higher. mm, Yeah. But I think this movie does a decent job of hiding its production values, mostly by like shooting on location. And, you know, again, this is like a good looking monster from Paul Blaisdell. Like, I would say the quality of this monster suit is about what I would expect from like a tokusatsu television show in Japan, like like a Subaraya monster design, but yeah, not like you expect the Power Rangers to come out. Right. Like it's not a Subaraya monster from like a movie, but it is like a Subaraya monster from like, yeah, like Ultraman or something. Yeah, entirely. So like production values here are fine above the spiritualist a.k.a. The Amazing Mr. X, is Jujin Yuki Otoko, a.k.a. Half Human, which, again, feels like in the ballpark of this movie in terms of, like, also the, like, horror to not horror level. Mm -hmm. I feel like this movie's trying to be horror much more than Jujin Yuki Otoko was. 
because Jujin Yuki Otoko has kind of like a bit of a um, very special episode energy to it as well, where it's like, well, yeah. if only we were nice to the monsters, right? Um, which is very Ishiro Honda. But like this, you know, you say that like the horror in this isn't, you know, there isn't that much of it. But like, I think it's intention is to be a horror movie the whole way through. I said the focus was a little mm, off. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, for sure. Just above Jujin Yukio Toko is Cult of the Cobra, mm. which also is like a movie that is cheap with like kind of a nonsense plot that doesn't really work, but is sort of about things, but you're unsure if the movie knows that it's about things. <laughs> yeah. So my ceiling for this one was The Black Room at number 57, which definitely knows what it's doing. Sure. So I think the highest I would go on this movie is 58. Looking down from The Amazing Mr. X, there's It Came From Outer Space at 61, which is basically, you know, it conquered the world, but it's Universal doing it in 3D several years earlier. And I think the creature design is much better. Yeah, absolutely. But everything (laughs) else kind of sucks. Honestly, I think this might be better than that, or it might be worse. Like, that movie gets some points in my books for being, like, the first movie to do some of its ideas about the alien coming and controlling people and blah, 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 blah. So this this might be worse than it. It might be better. But below that is Revenge of the Creature, which is fine. But if I had to, I think I would watch this over Revenge of the Creature. There's more interesting stuff going on here. Revenge of the Creature is like... A little bit of a deeper dive. <laughs> um, it, it it goes a little bit further with the premise. Yeah. By like two steps. But it's very paint by numbers. Yeah, like it's very like, paint by numbers y- and just almost like re-hitting the same uh, steps. Yeah, you can like time you know, everything that's going to happen in that movie, right? It's like, okay, the creature's going to escape and then they're going to go after him and then it's going to threaten the people and then it's going to kidnap the girl and they're going to go after him and then they're going to defeat him and then he's going to sink into the water. And like, this movie is more, I think, creative um, and just more fun to watch because there's more like bonkers stuff going on. So that's my range, 58 to 62. Okay. So, um... My range is much lower. Oh, no. How much low? Uh, So I started looking at one of our earliest 1950s Mm B-movies. Uh-huh. was thinking about how well the horror was handled in that versus this movie, which kind of missed where the real horror was. Missed the opportunities, yeah. Yeah. And I was drawn to the Neanderthal Man Oof. at number 140. Oof. Now, the Neanderthal Man also has big issues with consent. Yeah. But that's barely acknowledged with the idea of, like, the mad scientist experimenting on his deaf-mute uh, maid yeah, who, his deaf-mute Latina maid. Yeah. Yeah, that's, like, barely... Like, it's like, oh, it's horrific that he did that, but, like... It barely registers on the character's radar as being monstrous. Yeah, it's more like, oh, wow, he turned her into a monster, rather than, like, oh, shit, that's fucked up. 
And then there's also the like sexual assault in that movie, which does register on the characters more, but kind of still feels a little fucked up in how the movie treats it because the movie can't come out and actually say it. Right. Yeah. So it's just like as if that that scene in the movie plays as if a bunch of people who didn't know what rape was found a person who had been raped. Like it's like something out of like Pleasantville where it's like <laughs> um, reality sort of like interposing itself on this 50s movie. It's bad. Yeah. Also, the like effects in that movie are bad. The makeup's bad. The pacing's bad. The shooting's bad. Everything about the Neanderthal man is fucking terrible. Yeah. So that was my floor. Okay, that's fair. And then moving up, I stopped around 1.30, Bride of the Monster. Mm, the Ed Wood picture. Yeah, um, because that movie, uh, I guess the creature is um, better in She-Creature because it's actually made and not just like... A wrestler in- that we found. Or or like an octopus from stock footage. That we stole. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I have a hard time trying to find a ceiling. I just know it goes above the Neanderthal man, <laughs> to be honest. Well, I will say compared to Bride of the Monster, that the one thing you really feel watching this movie is that if this movie had been made like 10 years earlier, uh, Lombardi would have been played by Lugosi. Yes, like they do the Bella Lugosi stare and focus in on his eyes. This movie has the same understanding of hypnosis and how it works that the average Bella Lugosi movie does, right? Yeah. Like hypnosis is done by locking eyes with you and making hand gestures. Yeah, I feel like Lombardi would have been Lugosi and the she creature would have been Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. Sure. So where do we go from here, Ben? Well... So if your ceiling was 130, that's 62 to 130, which is 70 movies, roughly. Uh, So the midpoint of that would be like somewhere in the 90s. So like 95 is Captive Wild Woman, which is also a movie about a lady monster. Soul of a Monster is above that, too. Soul of a Monster is the one where there's a lady Satan. Yeah. Um, So Soul of a Monster is bad because it's all a dream. Yeah. Captive Wild Woman is bad because it doesn't know what the fuck kind of movie it is. (laughs) Um, Because it's like, well, what if half of this movie was stock footage from an earlier circus movie? And what if, like, the lady who's a monster... Like, in both of these movies... The lady monster is a woman who becomes some guy in a suit. Or in the case of Captain Wild Woman, technically it's some guy in the suit who becomes a woman and then goes back at one point. Anyways, the point is, um, I much prefer the she creature to Captain Wild Woman. Because while John Carradine is like better at doing what he does in that movie than Chester Morris is at doing what he does in this movie. This movie at least is like, yes, hello, we are a movie about a hypnotist turning a woman into her previous life form of a big lobster (laughs) babe and killing people. Whereas like Captive Wild Woman is like, hi, we're about a mad scientist turning a gorilla into a woman. And then she becomes a gorilla again in order to save this circus tamer from his act about lions and tigers. And you're like, wait, 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 sorry, you've lost me. What do you think about the she creature? compared to 
the original lady monster, Dracula's daughter. Where's that? 89. That's tough. Um, Dracula's daughter is more interesting because Maria Zaleska is a character, not just like, I mean, you can't call Andrea a sexy lamp because you can't hypnotize a sexy lamp into becoming a lobster babe. <laughs> but um, Have you tried? <laughs> no dear i'll get right on that (laughs) below that is the mummy's tomb which does feature the mummy threatening some kids making out in a car but the mummy doesn't kill them it just sort of is there and they get spooked and it walks away so i think that makes this intrinsically better (laughs) but dracula's daughter i think has better character stuff gosh which movie has the worst the worst comic relief dracula's daughter with it's like oh i i'm a british bobby let's go down and take dracula's coffin up to a lorry and then we'll drive the lorry round the bend and or this movie which has like olaf the swedish butler being like oh you you lieutenant james wants to talk to you sir he was actually fairly minimal he was extremely minimal so uh, kind of for that Okay, then which movie's inability to retain its focus where it should be is better? The She-Creature, where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The horror is all these murders and the fact that she's under his control. But also Lobster Babe. But also Lobster Babe. Or Murders in the Remorgue, which is like, Bela Lugosi is doing experiments on sex workers to see if they can breed with his ape. But... These college students are going to go for a trip to the park. <laughs> I feel like Murders in the Remorgue wins this one. Okay. Okay. Because as much as like it's horrifying about the idea of Lombardi taking advantage of Andrea while she's under, she can possibly get out. Whereas like the horror in murders in the room morgue like leads to these women being killed mm, mm, mm. all right do you want to do below murders in the room morgue and above dracula's daughter yeah let's do that that feels right to you yeah okay so then entering the list at the new number 89 is the she creature from 1956 directed by edward l Kahn. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find many of the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and never miss an episode and always have access on the podcasting app of your choice. If you would like to help the show out, you can do so by leaving a rating or a review on that app. Uh, By doing so, it lets the algorithms that control our destinies know that the show should be seen by other people. Or you can circumvent the algorithms, uh, revolt against the machine by telling someone directly about the show, whether that's on social media or from six feet away while you're wearing a mask. 
uh, you can just say, hey, this is a really cool podcast and you should check it out if you're into old movies, horror movies, culture, history. Hypnotism. Right. Lobster babes. Right. Finally, if you really would like to show your appreciation for what we do here at Castle Scream Scene, you can head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at higher tiers get access to regular bonus material, such as cut content from past episodes, movie reviews, short stories, music, audiobooks, bonus episodes that are a little off format, and more. So that's patreon.com slash podcast if you would like to chip in to help us keep the lights on and, you know, <laughs> continue to feed ourselves. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are watching the original Evil Child movie. It's The Bad Seed from 1956. Oh, is this like a big deal movie? Yes. This is a this is a Criterion Channel movie. Oh damn. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, stay tuned, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.